This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast with the New Books Network. My name is Brian Scott, and today we are joined by Professor Ignacio M. Sanchez Prado. Ignacio is a professor of Spanish, Latin American Studies, and Film and Media Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. His area of research includes Latin American intellectual history, neoliberal culture, world literary theory, and Mexican literary, film, and cultural studies. He is the author and editor of several books, including Screening Neoliberalism, Mexican Cinema, 1988-2012, to and most recently, Strategic Accidentalism, on Mexican fiction, the neoliberal book market, and the question of world literature, published earlier this year, which we will be discussing today. Welcome, Ignacio. It's great to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Um, So there's so much to talk about today regarding the publication of your most recent book, Strategic Occidentalism, and how it attempts to challenge and redirect some of the currents in world literary theory by bringing into the discussion some of the less translated writers in Mexican fiction, and also by bringing some of the themes and currents within Latin American studies into conversation with theories of world literature, which have perhaps been left out of many of these, uh, which have been left out of, of many of the discussions around world literature. So can you just start off by saying something about your background and training um, and what led to or necessitated this book? Yes. So I am um, originally from Mexico City, and I got a, an undergraduate degree in literature. And that was just the name literature. It's not English or Spanish or anything like that, or comparative literature, just plain literature at the University of the Americas in Puebla. And I always explain to my U.S. friends that a degree in Mexico is different because you only study your major. So this was a full program of literature. It was not a liberal arts institution, right? And it was a very thorough education that begins in the in the classics, you know, and in 
the antiquities and comes all the way to the contemporary. The class are usually very sequential. I'm saying this because it relates to the book in many important ways. One of which is that my mentor for uh, in this university, one of the two mentors I was lucky to have, as well as another professor, are writers that I studied in this book. So I, in that moment, the, in this program that was not focused on Latin American literature, but on what we now call world literature, the term was not there at the time for us to use, uh, is related also to my ability to have seen my professors deal with the problem of world literature as writers at this time in Latin American fiction, which is what is in chapter two of the book. Uh, so after that, I moved, uh, I came to the University of Pittsburgh for my graduate degree. And that was a slightly different program because the Mexico program was very focused on literature, whereas Pittsburgh was very strong on um, cultural studies. Um, and as a result of my trajectory, sort of the result of the mixture, I usually write a book on literature and a book on cinema, uh, one after the other. I have a, a book on Mexican humanists that was my dissertation in Spanish. It's called Naciones Intelectuales. This strategic occidentalism is part of that project. This is sort of a follow-up. Uh, I have edited collections on world literature and other issues. And then I also have a side career in which I write about Mexican cinema. I have a book on contemporary Mexican cinema and some works, uh, some forthcoming work on mid-century Mexican cinema. But all of this work is uh, united by the question of cosmopolitanism on the one side. So how, what does it actually mean to be cosmopolitan in, in Latin America? What are the politics of cosmopolitanism? And the other one is a cultural sociology, right? So I'm very much interested in the relationship between institutions, aesthetics, ideologies, and, and cultural production. Um, my, I, I have been working at Washington University in St. Louis for 15 years. It was the job I got right after grad school, which was, as we know, really rare and exceptional, but I have been at my institution for that long, and I have been working alternating between literary and film studies, and now maybe food studies for the future. Great. So you've written extensively, uh, both here and elsewhere, on world literary theory. Because your, your book is invested in, as the title states, the question of world literature, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the shortcomings you find in dominant ways of framing world literature and how they led to your methodology and focus specifically on Mexican literature and also specifically how does Mexican literature challenge some of these, these paradigms? So this has evolved over time, but I always like to say as a half joke that my, my research is informed by frustration, right? Um, and in this particular case, it began uh, when the, I became acquainted uh, with, on the one hand, Franco Moretti's writings on con the conjectures of world literature and what would become his book on distant reading over time, and the work of uh, Pascal Casanova, in the World Republic of Letters. Although the book by David Danbrosch, What is World Literature, was out. That wasn't a book that really I paid a lot of attention to, which is part of the reason why my perspective might be skewed, right? Because I didn't start with this institutional concept of world literature that has taken more hold in the U.S. Uh, and I have to say that Pascal Casanova's book, I read it in Spanish, 
because it was published in Spanish before it was published into English. So the discussion in Spanish precedes the discussion in English, and that's why it was a little bit more on my radar. So in reaction to those uh, uh, two uh, authors, to Moretti and Casanova, I edited a collection called America Latina and La Literatura Mundial in Spanish in the Institute for Latin American Literature in Pittsburgh. Uh, and what came back, I mean, even Franco and Pascal were very generous in granting me texts for me to translate and put in the book. Uh, I don't know how happy they were with me afterwards, because what happened afterwards was that there was a, a very critical reception of their ideas from my Latin American colleagues. Uh, some of them saw sort of a reactivation of a Eurocentric paradigm of world literature. Some of some others saw, a, a, you know, very uncomfortable with Pascal Casanova's Franco-centrism, which is one of the things that motivated the response. But generally speaking, a lot of skepticism about whether even the, the idea of world literature would be useful for us. I think it is, but not everybody around me does. After that, I sort of stepped back because I began writing a book on film. Uh, and some colleagues in the field, you probably have heard of Mariano Siskin, Hector Hoyos, uh, Juan de Castro. They publish books that engage the question of world literature. There's a, a research group of which I am part at the University of Cologne in Germany, uh, led by Gesine Müller, that has produced many books on world literature in Latin America. There's a colleague, Gustavo Guerrero, in France, who uh, uh, who has written about the question from the part of the markets. So there was a whole conversation, and I took a little bit of a step back. My, my book was cited in those conversations every so often. But at some point, I would say around 2010, I decided to look back. It took me a bunch of years to write this book, but it, I decided to go, come back and really think the question, uh, not so much in dialogue with other theories, but rather from the ground up, from how I would think about it. And I think that the problem that I found is this, is that we describe world literature as a single entity that is observable and describable, right? And that you can come from the outside and just talk about it. Um, it's a literature, you know, defined very broadly by Dan Rush as a literature that is published outside. Uh, it's, it's context of production, you know, it's related to the question of whether it be, it's been translated. But I think that a lot of the discussions on world literature really render invisible. How does it happen that world literature exists, right? Uh, I don't think world literature is a, is a thing. I think it's, a, it's an institutional effect of the literary fields that imagine concepts of the world that are both a broad in the sense that they look outside of their national and regional and linguistic contexts, but they're also limited because whenever you're in a linguistic setting, you don't have access to the same amount of world literature because of very practical reasons, like who can translate what, that you will have in other reasons. And that's how I came up with the idea of Mexican world literature. So, which broadly defined, I don't know if I do it in the book. I'm, I'm really bad at straightforward defining things in my books. I like to show them rather than, than writing like clear-cut definitions. Uh, I don't think I did, but, uh, you know, the way I would put it is that Mexican world literature is um, the way in which world literature is produced from the cultural institutions of an identifiable literary field that is in Mexico, that has publishing houses, writers, translators, and so on, 
is a field that exists in itself, but it's also very centered in a few cities. And it also connects to the Latin American literary field. It connects to the literary field in the Spanish language, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that there are many literary fields that are networked and interrelated, and each one of those literary fields has a world literature. So what I would say is that rather than it being a describable object, we I, I will contend that we have to see it as world literature in plural, world literatures that are produced by the different identifiable uh, literary fields that engage in a relationship with culture beyond themselves. So how do those... So how would you say that those literatures um, relate, like, do they, do they make up a system or is it some sort of um, interlinked plurality? Like, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of, um, you know, especially Casa de Nova's, Nova's definition, definition that is, you know, that is um, Eurocentric, but also, you know, is, is very influenced by, um, you know, this kind of... Uh, or do style cultural analysis. Um, so, would you say that that there is a system? And and I'm wondering where Mexican literature stands stands in, in that system. It, you know, if you would say that that there is one, and also why specifically Mexican literature? Like, like what would you say that Mexican literature does in? Okay helping a definition of world literature? I would say that it's both of the things that you say. It is a system, and it is also a group of interlinked pluralities. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Because the thing here, and this is something that I will, I always come back to, is you have to see how it's done in practice, right? There is a what we might call a hegemonic system of world literature. And that is, I think, the one that, it, that more accurately is described by people like Casanova, right? Uh, which is to say that there are public, transnational public publishing houses, agencies, um, academic sites, uh, scenes of reading that are able to generalize certain works uh, to a more, you know, what used to be called universal level, right? So I think that you can say James Joyce belongs to that system. Um, it's translated to however many languages. It has been influential across many traditions, right? Uh, I don't know that a writer from Mexico would easily occupy that position. I think that even though James Joyce comes from a, what Moretti calls a semi-peripheral space in in uh, in Europe, in 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 Europe because it's Ireland, I think that at that point the fact that he was European, he was readable in English helped. That changed later with Garcia Marquez, right? When Spanish language was able to bring in a writer. So it is a system that is evolving over time. Uh, and it's never fixed, but it really is able to consecrate at a more global level uh, a certain group of, of works. At the same time, uh, if you start, I don't think, and this is something that has gone, garnered me criticisms, but I, I'm happy to say it many times. I don't think it is really that interesting to say that a writer in Latin America is influenced by James Joyce because you can trace the specifics of that influence and that may be interesting, but the statement of its influence is not as much because James Joyce is so pervasive across the world, just like Garcia Marquez, that I think it's almost more interesting to look at the stuff that is not James Joyce and Garcia Marquez because that is when you start seeing what literature looks like. Um, so to, just to give you an example that is not from the book, but is one I've been thinking recently. 
Uh, I wrote uh, maybe three years ago an article about Africa and Mexican literature. And my argument was, which was correct at the time, that there wasn't very much African literature you could read in Spanish. And a lot of it was Anglophone literature in particular that came pre-validated by English language markets before you could read it in Mexico. Uh, and now what you're seeing is a boom of translation of writers from Lusophone Africa. You know, Mia Couto, Patricia Chisiane, uh, and, and, you know, people from Angola, from Mozambique, on Jackie, right? And there is far more of that literature translated into Spanish than into English. And then you, you start looking why, right? Portuguese is closer to Spanish than to English. There's not a lot of good literary translators of Portuguese into English. A lot of those work on, on literature from Portugal and Brazil rather than Luso-African, although there's, of course, some exceptions, right? Um, some of the writers don't necessarily have the same degree of agent that a, a European or a Latin American writer has that sells rights across the world. And in some cases, those have been translated because a specific translator has made the case to a specific press for them to be translated. Or in some cases, there's a publisher in Mexico now called Elefanta. They have a programmatic interest in this kind of writer. So they're really interested in publishing more African writers as part of their editorial program, something that is not necessarily the case in other linguistic traditions. Now, that is the world literature that I'm interested in. It's not so much that it's south to south, right, which is one way of reading it, or that it's post-colonial, but rather that there are things that you cannot account for by just looking at the hegemonic system. If you only you look at the hegemonic system, you validate Eurocentrism, because ultimately what you're saying is that only the institutions from powerful countries can produce world literature, and everybody else just can get it mediated through those institutions. And this, is, this can be partially true, but Mexico, I would say like Argentina would be, probably Turkey would be like that, you know. You, you spoke to Ian Almond. I think he probably would say that Turkey and India belong to the same claim. Uh, Mexico is a country that is semi-peripheral in the sense that um, it's not a place where hegemonic world literature is done, right? It, it is dependent at some level of the publication system of Spain because our big corporations of publishing in the Spanish language stem out of Spain. But at the same time, it has a very, very, very strong literary field that was created through basically through government institutions. And at the same time, it has a very substantive publication problems of its own. And at the same time, it's a very cosmopolitan country that is also very nationalist. So it is sort of like a, a sweet spot in terms of thinking, the relationship between the national and the global is a sweet spot of thinking, the interaction between global literary institutions and local literary institutions, because it is a country where all of those are strong at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that touches a, a lot on, you know, you, the emphasis on on the neoliberal book market, which is, um, you know, a, a major part of, part of, of the book. Um so can you say how that relates a little bit to, um, I guess, what you mean by strategic occidentalism? So if you could explain kind of that term and, and how it relates to, um, you know, the discussion that we're having on, on the, these, these networks and, and book markets and circulation. So the book studies, I mean, I'm making very big claims, but it really studies a very specific point in time. 
eh, which I would say is one chapter dedicated to one writer, Sergio Pitol, who's a precursor, right? Eh, who's a writer that is about the same generation of Carlos Fuentes and Gabriel García Márquez, but definitely not someone that had the kind of success eh, eh, that those writers had in the international sphere. His works are just barely being translated into English right now, right? They, he, his major novel is just coming out in January. But he also was at the center of the revolution in publishing in both Mexico and Spain. In, he was in the right moment and, and the right time. And he was a translator of over 50 books, some of which is Henry James and Jane Austen, and some of which are very interesting choices that we can get to in a minute, right? And then the other two chapters are very, very grand in the 1990s. One is about uh, the group where my professors belong. It's called the Crack Group. And the other one is a, a selection of three uh, women writers, because I also talk about how the idea of the woman writer is a construction of the market at this time. But broadly speaking, if you look at the scene uh, of publishing Latin American literature, say Latin America in the 80s, it was very intense because of the interest garnered by the boom writers. But at the same time, the writers that really came to the fore in the 1980s, Isabel Allende and Laura Esquivel, who were hugely successful, they really were part of a market that created an imperative for Latin American writers to write magical realist fiction or to write about the cultural specificity of Latin America as a sort of precondition to be part of world literature. If you look at world cultural institutions, this is always the problem. It's always a problem. If you look at cinema, for instance, a lot of the stuff that makes it to festivals are the, the stuff that validates the perspective that European and US audiences have about Latin America or Africa. But uh, so you will see films about violence, films about you know colonialism, or films about some kind of authenticity of the culture. But in Mexico, and this is what I studied in another book, the most popular films are romantic comedies produced in Mexico, you will never get those translated because they show an upper-class, cosmopolitan, wealthy uh, side of Mexico that it really short-circuits the, the exoticist understanding of Mexico. Because I think that part of the problem, and I always say this, and like people get angry at me sometimes, but it's true. I think that there's a, a, an inability of Europeans and Americans to look at global South countries as culturally complex. Um, so the world literature has the same problem. It, it really handpicks writers that appeal to a concept of Latin America, concept of Mexico, concept of Africa. And what I'm studying in the book is writers, like the crack writers, are, uh, my professors were very keen this part, that were really pushing back at this idea that in order for them to be successful writers in a literary market, they had to correspond to those stereotypes. So the most uh, widely popular uh, writer from Mexico in that period, Jorge Volpi, that I studied in the book, he came to the international market with a novel about Nazis in Europe, in which Mexico is barely mentioned in passing and almost as a wink, right? Um, and that's the kind of question they were asking, like, why can I, as a Mexican writer, have the right to write about Europe? When there is all these European writers that write about Latin America, and they get awards and they get recognition, they get the Nobel Prize sometimes even. Uh, but, I, but a German reader would not read a book by a Mexican writer about Germany. 
So that's sort of the imbalance that these writers were hitting at. And the neoliberal book market is, a, is an interesting problem to me because um, it, 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 you have to understand what are the things that circulate and not in order for you to understand what is the world literature that we get, but also what is the world literature that we do not get. And that's why I look at it in the perspective. So these are writers that are commercially successful, very widely read, but at the same time struggle significantly to get into the world literature market. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that also just reminds me of um, you know an, an essay that, that I read of yours that, that I mentioned previously on, on American Dirt, um, the, type of, the type of marketability um, in, in selling these sorts of of narratives and and those seem to be you know as you said the the only type of stories that 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 can be told um, and they're often you know um, exotic exoticizing and and simplistic and focusing on on certain very very narrow specific stereotypical experiences um, and you chose you chose works that that very much seem to be invested in pushing back against that, specifically uh, the crack group and, and their ambitions and, you know, as they also explain it in, in their manifesto. Um, so can you say a little bit more, um, I guess, about, about the, the crack group and, and what they were about and what, uh, and what they are about and, and what their ambitions are and, and you know, possibly also... Um, you know, Sergio Patel and, and the, the three women writers um, that that you chose in your third chapter. Yeah. So I can go chronologically. I think that's, that's going to make more sense, right? So Sergio Pitol is a Mexican writer um, born in the late 20s or early 30s. I don't remember exactly right now. I guess I have to fact check myself. Uh, but he was a writer... Uh, in 1933, actually, just checked it in my computer, just so I don't give an inaccurate piece of information. So Sergio Pitoli is um, a writer who was also, from a very relatively young age, a cultural diplomat and occupied many various positions in Mexican embassies, particularly in Eastern Europe. So he, as a very young man, actually ended up in China uh, in these uh, institutions that were aimed at the translation of Chinese literature into various languages. Uh, he probably did this second hand. I don't believe he spoke Chinese, but he translated the uh, Lushun into Spanish. Uh, and then over time, during his many years traveling and, and being a diplomat in Eastern Europe, he became a very major translator of Eastern European works uh, into Spanish, mostly Polish, uh, but also, you know, Czech, uh, Russian, at some point in the late, in the 60s, he ends up in Barcelona at a moment in which literary presses are booming because of the weakening of censorship in Franco's regime. 
as well as um, a, the, the economic impetus that was given by the boom. So he works very particularly with a, a press called Tusquets, where he creates a series called Heterodoxos, where he edits writers in translation that are not very commonly read in Spanish. He later becomes very close with Jorge Ralde, the founder of Anagrama, which was the defining press in the language in the 80s and 90s. And he also translates uh, people there and he uh, uh, publishes his own books. And his novels and his, his two major sets of works are a trilogy of carnivalesque semi-comedic novels and a trilogy of hybrid texts that you would now call auto-fictional about uh, his, journey, his travel around the world and his life. Um, and they are very influenced by these uh, very rare sources and very rare authors that he translated. Uh, he's very revered by the generation of the crack, and he's very revered by younger writers. If you look around on the internet, you will see that a few years ago, people like Valeria Luiselli were saying that he was a great untranslated writer of Mexico, because he really sets a pathway on how to be cosmopolitan, sort of in a in a in a strategic sense, and that's what I also mean by strategic cosmopolitanism. It is the way in which you read as a writer, or as a critic, or as a translator the archives available to you for literature, and you make aesthetic and ideological choices within that tradition that are sometimes counterintuitive. And that counterintuitive choice leads you to an aesthetic uh, pathway and an ideological pathway in your work. Uh, the crack group, uh, it was a group of six writers. I think it's important to say that they were male writers because that's part of the story here. They were uh, uh, they work in a different Sintony that the women writers of the last chapter, which is why I made that distinction. Uh, and these writers were gathered around a manifesto that was published a year before I came into college to study with them in 1996, where they really, you know, had very lofty ideas about the complexity of the novel, very lofty ideas about uh, the right of the Latin American writer to write around the world. And they were really pushing back uh, against the kind of epigonal magical realism that they saw embodied in writers like, like Isabel Allende. And the idea that the Latin American writer has to participate or to be complicit with that, um, with that exoticization of Latin America from the outside. They are a very difficult group to understand, and they certainly have many detractors in Mexico. Because they, they do a few counterintuitive things, right? The cosmopolitanism, for instance, it has led to accusations of them being detached from their national reality, even though it's the point of the writing at the time. But some of them are also have books about Mexico, and some of them have even occupied political positions in Mexico. But they really don't want to be constrained as writers to just be Mexican, right? Um, th there's also a criticism that they released, that they sort of sold out because they have days, they started signing big editorial contracts. But I, actually, my claim is that that was the point. The point was to say that we can be successful writers. We want to have readers. We don't just want to write for the lucky few that, that read literature in Mexico. And we want to come into the market in our own, in our own terms. So they began publishing books in coordination in a, in, in a Mexican press. And then they got contracts in Spain, and each one of them got different degrees of success transnationally. Jorge Volpi got a lot of success very quickly. That has fizzled a little bit over time. Ignacio Padilla got some translations, and then others like Palo, my professor, 
he didn't get any translations at all. So that proves that differentiation of who got successful and why is also an interesting thing to study. And finally, the third chapter, it was originally going to be about Cristina Rivera Garza, who now is a well-known writer in English. She won the MacArthur Prize. But then I found the work of Carmen Boyosa, who's a very interesting writer, very well-known, but I hadn't really read her very much until the book. And she's a, a, a wonderful writer because she's dismissed sometimes for being too close to the market. But she writes both books that really appeal to the literary market and books that really appeal to the commercial market. Uh, and this navigation of refusing to being called a woman writer, but at the same time writing on the success of women writers that are coming behind her, being reluctant to adopt that kind of magical realist aesthetics, but having some books that touch upon some of those elements. So that hesitancy makes her a very interesting writer to me. But I, I think that part of the question is, you know, the idea of the woman writer that we have now um, is not, it's also the kind of thing that is not so much a fact rather than as an institutional construction. Women writers get segregated and packaged like that by the market. You don't necessarily have to do that, right? You could just count them as writers as such, but they are described as women writers because there are editorial and educational apparatuses that make that selection as a way of both marketing to a majority woman, a majority female reading public, and at the same time um, working to fight against the concentration of, of cultural power in the hands of men. And you can see the effects of this now because I, I don't think it's an exaggerated thing to say that in 2020, 2021, the most important Latin American literature has been written by women. I think that you you will see that there's far more women writing definitive books and all the major awards in Spanish last year went to women. So I think that you can see the results of the, 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 the work that these precursors did back in the 1990s with the editorial market. Yeah, so in a lot of... In a lot of the choices, um, and you know, as you as lis- listening to you explain um, a lot of the, the choices th- that you made <clears throat> in your book, um, there seems to be this this kind of negotiation between um, this overwhelming force of the market, and then you know, writers who who want to resist those forces in some way so that um and, and that kind of brings brings up um you know this this kind of popular idea of, of cosmopolitanism as as um you know I, I guess maybe its worst iteration would be um cultural simplifications and possibly circulating stereotypes um and then there's also this this kind of notion of works that are born translated and it seems like in in the works that that you chose um you know in in the the crack group and and in other um and in in the other writers that that you worked on there's this this kind of intense negotiation um which can be i suppose limiting uh, in terms of, you know, translation and translatability. Um, but I'm wondering if there's also possibly a, a pushback uh, against kind of not only linguistic, but cultural translatability. If there's a kind of ethics or, or aesthetics of, 
uh, of opacity um, in some ways. And, and I'm just, just, just wondering how these writers uh, negotiate all of, all of those things, um, not only tra- cultural and linguistic translation, but also uh, coming to the market on their own terms. Like, did they, what was the ambition? Um, who, who are they writing for? Did, was, is there a desire to be translated? Um, and, you know, if you could say something about kind of those questions and those negotiations. Yeah. I, I think, I think that your questions are pointing to, to the various counterintuitive things that these writers are bringing uh, to, to, to the literary practice, because they don't really correspond with the way in which we see politics of culture today. Right. The first one is the notion that, and you can see this in words like Emily Apter's Against World Literature, which is it's a brilliant book that I don't like very much uh, because I have some objections to the way she presents it, or even some of the people, good friends like Osvaldo Zavala, who has a pushback against some of my work on Occidentalism by defending uh, the cultural specificity and opacity and untranslatability as you have put forward, right? Um, this is not what these writers are doing. These writers want to be translated, but they want to set the terms by which they get translated rather than doing so. They don't think, and this is one of the reasons why they are hard to cope, they think that a writer that sells is a good thing. They, I remember that they look very admirably, for instance, at Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, right? Which is a global bestseller, but it is also a fairly dense book that is very erudite. And they really wanted to, to, to capture that that possibility. Um, they are saying that the Latin American writer is not a native informant of Latin America. The Latin American writer has as cosmopolitan an archive as a writer from anywhere else. It's just that these writers are not granted the right to do it by a, the hegemonic system of world literature. Now, if you think about this, this is from the 90s, right? But there is a very complicated politics here because the the fact is that we live in a moment where your legitimacy comes from your identity in culture, right? And I, you know, I say this myself, I had this cosmopolitan education, but I ultimately became a professor of Mexican literature and I had to give up some of that cosmopolitan formation because what is expected of me as a Mexican professor is to teach Mexico, right? It would have been much harder for me if I wanted to be a professor of German literature uh, professionally. And the writers face a similar conundrum. There's a reader from outside that wants the writers to talk about themselves and to talk about the culture that they come from. And this idea of otherness is very limiting. When the debate in American Death that you referred before came out, I was a little frustrated by the way it turned out to be because the idea was that Janine Cummins is white and therefore she doesn't have the right to write about Mexico. Um, and then people started with very good reason to put forward the notion that we need more Latino, Latinos in publishing and so on. But I think that missed an important point, which is that it's not that Janine Cummins writes about Mexico, that she writes about it ignorantly. Uh, there's a book that I recommended, written by a white American writer, Paul Thoreau, a very well-known one, that is a travelogue through Mexico that I think is great, and that looks about things in Mexico that a Mexican doesn't necessarily write about, Mexican writers don't write about. You can, you can have educated outsiders 
uneducated outsiders have perspectives that are different from those that come from within a culture. I think that if you look at Carmen Boyosa's books about European history, if you look at the crack writers, if you look at Sergio Pitot's writings about Eastern Europe, that is the kind of thing that they, they are telling us. We are cosmopolitan and educated Latin Americans that are constantly pigeonholed by Europeans and Americans as people that have to be reporting about our identity and our authenticity. And we don't want to do that. We want to be able to engage in this kind of global conversation. You know, you can object to them in a few ways. One of the ways in which is they're, of course, part of a cultural elite, right? In a country that is one of the most unequal countries in the world, that for, for certain at the top of the of the class scale, right? Even if you look at someone like Valeria Luiselli, she usually gets taken to task because she comes from, from a cultural and an economic elite. But how many writers don't come from, from that elite? There's plenty. You cannot have a history of literature without elites. Literature is a production of the elite. Some people from marginalized positions can enter that elite through certain mechanisms. But I think the mere fact of writing literature already makes you the member of at least a cultural elite, right? Even within a marginalized group. And I think that because we have this politics of giving marginality and peripherality a, a positive value without looking critically about what pers- those perspectives can do, we also have this effect of denying people that come from peripheral or minority positions the possibility of being citizens of the world. There's a, there's a negative politics that comes with the politics of a specificity and identity that, that are not, is not discussed that openly. Uh, these writers were, at the moment when they were very keenly aware of the limiting constrictions that they had whenever they were perceived as Mexican writers, and therefore as writers that they did, did not have the right to write about the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I guess um, I guess that kind of you know answers all of the questions I have. Um, you know, it's it's a really really provocative, really wonderful book, um, and and yeah, I really really enjoyed reading it. Um, so, can you tell me, um, you know, as kind of a just like a wrap up question, um, if you could just say something about what you're working on now, some of, some of the projects uh, that you're working on, you know, I read on, on your, um, you know, on the faculty page that, that you're, you're working on three books. Is that, is that right? Yes, um, that is moment? correct. <laughs> I'm, 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 the, the thing is the way I work is that I have research projects that I, I research for a very long periods of time, sometimes a decade and sometimes more. <laughs> And I start churning out articles, conference papers, and eventually a portion of that project becomes a book, or sometimes it becomes two books, right? So the world literature has been a project of 20 years. A strategic occidentalism is like a carving of it. And I have been writing about other elements in world literature, in, in you know, loose articles and so on. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a person that writes like a, like a major monograph. I am a person that writes more modest books alongside 15 or 20 articles on the side. I, I like to be more spread out in that way. Um, so, you know, the, the, I have the running question of, of this. And you, I, I have to say that this is, you know, there's even a personal component to this because I'm always confronted to two problems. Uh, the problem is the first one, right? The expectation that I'm always sort of the token Mexican, which I have been in many ways, right? But I think also the fact that there is a history of, of anti-colonialism in culture 
that is not thinkable in contemporary terms, which is the idea of writers that don't want to be pigeonholed into the position of the colonized even, right? And, and of cultural producers. And people, people, and what I'm, and if you look at cinema, which is what I'm writing now, uh, the thing that I have a very bone, a very big fight internally is that everything that you look about the history of Mexican cinema in the mid-century is about Mexicanness, right? The films that are privileged are the films that, that show, you know, the mariachis and horses and haciendas and, right? Or, you know, the urban popular class and all of these things that, that are markers of Mexican cultural authenticity. Uh, but one of the reasons why many Mexicans of my generations emphasize cosmopolitanism is because for us, that cultural nationalism of, Mexi of Mexico is a project of the state and it was a project of our one party regime. So cosmopolitanism for us has always been a way to fight against the cultural hegemony within our country. Um, because nationalism is manufactured as an institute, as, an, as a form of power yeah, at the level of culture by the Mexican state. This doesn't mean that we don't love muralism or, you know, the films of, of El Indio Fernandez or whatever, but it means that we, ha we take our nationalism to a grain of salt because nationalism is not always subaltern. Nationalism can be hegemonic too. So with that in mind, what I'm writing is a book called Popular Cosmopolitanism, that really looks into the cosmopolitan cinema of mid-century Mexico. They kind of get sidetracked by, by presentists' understandings of nationalism. But that really was very popular, right? So one chapter is on literary adaptations. So it talks about, for example, comedic adaptations of Romeo and Juliet and things like that, right? Or one is about horror, and one is about noirs, and maybe there's a chapter about thrillers in there, I'm not sure yet. Maybe there's a chapter about westerns, so that's forming right now. Uh, but the motivation here is, it was actually the memory of my mother, who was a big erudite of cinema. She could also tell you the story of the Count of Monte Cristo, or the story of Le Miserable, or the story of Hamlet, but she had never actually read a book, because she only finished elementary school. And she loved world culture, and she loved world cinema, even though she didn't have access to a formal education. And she actually didn't like Mexican cinema very much. And she's by no means the only one. There's a lot of working class Mexicans who have that experience of what I call popular cosmopolitanism, which is a sense of being in the world that comes through popular culture and that it doesn't get recognized because these people from this social strata are supposed to be the, the representatives of the authenticity of the nation, right? So that's one project. I also have a follow-up to my book on cinema of the screening neoliberalism, about a, which is um, a sort of a critique of the transnational way in which Mexican cinema gets circulated and a critique of the way in which the Alejandro González Iñárritu and Alfonso Cuarón are perceived. And that's a little less advanced. And I have also the idea of writing a book about the idea of the taco in in, in global society, but that that is just an idea right now. <laughs> but maybe you see, maybe you see in ten years. <laughs> yeah, no, those those all sound you know really fascinating, and and you know as I've said, I it, it, privately um and over email, I, I always look forward to to your work and and your essays, and you know I always really look forward forward to reading them. So I'm I'm really looking forward to you know 
reading those books when they when they arrive. Um, so that I wonder if I I wonder yeah. I want to I add one thing only. I, I know you have another question, but I just don't want this to go out, away with the interview. I think that what has changed since I published the book till now is that there is far more Mexican and far more and far more diverse Mexican literature and translation available in English. And if there is something that I would like my my English speaking friends to do is to give the literature an opportunity, especially the one that is not about drug cartels and immigration, right? And all of those stories that people expect from Mexican writers. Sergio, the, the press deep bellum in, in, tech, in Dallas is publishing the work of Sergio Pitol. And I can assure you, it is amazing stuff. Uh, Carmen Boyosa, the books haven't been very successful in English until recently, but there's a recent boom of translation. So her novel about Anna Karenina was published in English. She has a great book about uh, a careful in, in Texas back in the 19th century. They're incredible books. I don't see them very much in the in the conversation about literature in English because they do not fit the the stereotype of Mexican writer that people want them to be. But I, these are magnificent novels, and they need to get to more to more audiences. Can I? So I just can I follow up on that? And um, uh, so so why do you think? So what is what is the the, the impulse or what is the push behind um, behind these works being? published now and and who are the who's publishing who's publishing them and is there um is it a university press or is it um you know what what is what's happening now that that makes this a moment that's that's an interesting question because it, it has actually failed before so when the crack group came out there were some very big contracts even. Jorge Volpi got a very high contract. I think it was almost if six six figures for sure, maybe even seven, to translate his book In Search of Clingston. And then when it came out in English, it tanked, and it didn't even make it to paperback. Uh, so there was an, there, there has always been an impulse, but there has not really been interest in the in the in the reading public. Uh, you know, this is something that I tell my American friends. Uh, they they look at me you know, uh, in a limited way. But uh, the, the the situation is people in the U.S. don't read a lot of translation. We know that, right? And one thing that has always struck me when you come, when I came to the U.S., is that the section of fiction published by writers who write in English is much larger than the fiction in translation. When in Mexico, uh, the, the, what we call universal literature is like four or five times the size of the bookshelves of literature written in Spanish. So there's a different relationship to translated literature to begin with. Uh, and because of that, there has been various translators, agents, publishers, who have really wanted to go against the grain of that inertia of a literary culture that is just very engaged in its own language and not in very much else. Uh, and these are the ones that have pushed Mexican literature in particular. So there's independent publishers like Coffee House Press, like uh, Great Wolf, like the Bellum that have invested in Mexican writers. There's a great cohort of translators right now, Robin Myers, Christina McSweeney, Sarah Booker, Lisa Dillman, that have really been important in bringing the, the writers into English, advocating for them. And then there's also websites and pages and critics. I'm thinking, for instance, of the Los Angeles Book Review, where I write occasionally, that are beginning to pay attention 
to some of these books. And of course, you cannot deny that this happened in, in great part, first of all, because of the great success of Roberto Bolaño, and then followed by the great success of Valeria Luiselli, eh, which has created interest in other Mexican and Latin American writers. And I think that the, the amount of stuff that is translated is more, and also the amount of attention that this book gets is considerably more these days than even when I wrote the book. But you also have to understand that very little of this actually happens in the big five publishers, right? It is really happening maybe a little bit in, in university presses, but really it's about uh, independent trade presses that are pushing these these publications. Um, so that's that's what you're seeing. I, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I, again, I, 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 as you can guess, I, I embody the value of cosmopolitanism. And, and if I wish, I always am the, 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 the person that tells my American friends, read more world literature, watch more world cinema. Don't spend your days just looking at the, at the next crap that comes out of Netflix. Uh, you know, like the same thing on Twitter, like make an effort to make a, a to watch an African film, right? And I and they're already available, but just people don't go to them because people are really invested in the culture, in Anglophone culture, in a way that I don't think is healthy or or uh, or or in a way that I don't think is, is should be in a country that has so much power over the rest of the world. I think that intellectuals in the U.S. have to know more about the world because of the impact that their country has in the rest of the world. And a final thing: this is my big rant usually. In the case of Mexico in particular, we are the country next door. And the ignorance of Americans towards Mexico is astounding. And that even educated Americans, and that, that astounding ignorance is what sustains all of the sentiments against Mexico and against Mexico that are so prevalent in this country. I think that if people could see in Mexico a country that is what it is, unequal, complex, with great culture, and also with great problems that has that is very violent, but also very modern, right? If you can see the full picture, the politics towards Mexico, I think, would be better. Maybe I'm being an idealist, but I think that the, that is the stakes also of my work as a Mexicanist in the U.S. is to really say you have to get a better and more complex picture in Mexico, and that can only be done if you see the spectrum of Mexican culture rather than the one that validates your stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're absolutely right, um, and that's you know really really important discussion to be having. Um, so, I think um, so that about wraps up the interview. Um, so, thank you so much, um, Ignacio, for for joining us. Uh, thank you so much to our, our listeners for for joining us and to listening to the New Books and Literary Studies podcast. Um, and once again, thank you, thank you so much for for taking the time to to talk with us and. Congratulations on the publication of this really wonderful book. Thank you.